My aim this morning um, is to give you a biblical foundation of everything that I've said up to this point. And so I have also saved giving you a uh, biographical introduction of myself. So I'm going to go autobiography for just a few minutes, introduce myself to you guys, where I've been, what I'm doing, uh, what it has to do with you, and what I'm going to talk to you guys about this morning. So growing up as a young kid, um, I was raised in a textbook blue-collar family. And as a young kid growing up, my dad's idea of fun would be to take me out on the weekends and make me help him cut wood. Now, what Jeremy didn't tell you that I told uh, the Sunday school class and the, the, the folks last night is I'm from Arkansas, so it's great to be anywhere. Um, and so, you know, I grew up with a father who would take me out on these woodcutting expeditions every single weekend. And I remember as a young kid going on these woodcutting expeditions, and I always felt like it was a great way for my dad to, like, ruin my childhood. In fact, I spent most of my weekends complaining um, about all the work that he would make me do on these woodcutting expeditions. And so, you know, I was probably somewhere between the ages of about 7 and 10, running a chainsaw, which is like a lawsuit waiting to happen in today's world. And um, here we are on these woodcutting expeditions, and my dad would tell me the same life message every weekend. And this is what he would say to me. He would say, Sean, here's what you need to know about life. You need to grow up, you need to go to college, you need to get a great degree so that you can get a great paying job so that you can pay someone else to cut your wood. And I was like, wow, that's genius. Um, it just made sense to me, right? Like, grow up, go to college so that I could get a great degree, so that I could get a great paying job, so that I could pay somebody to do this miserable work that my dad takes me out on these weekend woodcutting expeditions to do. Now, there's nothing wrong with blue-collar work. There's nothing wrong with working hard. My dad had great intentions um, for taking me out on these woodcutting expeditions to teach me how to sweat and smash my fingers and all those kinds of things. Um, but I took what my dad told me as a young kid, grow up, go to college so I could get a great degree so that I could get a great paying job. I turned all that stuff that my dad told me into a great excuse to chase this thing called the American dream. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to college. There's nothing wrong with getting a job. In fact, the Bible tells us that we should work hard, right? And there's nothing wrong with making money. In fact, <clears throat> um, man, I wanted to go be a dentist, uh, I don't have any doctors in my family, but I thought, man, I would love to work three days a week and golf four. And I don't even like golf. Um, and if anybody in here is a dentist, they can tell you that whatever Sean's talking about is not the reality of what dental life is like. But that's the sort of the myth that I had created in my mind. Um, I was good at math and science. And if you're good at math and science in high school and you follow that trail out through college, you typically, not always, but typically end up becoming like a doctor or an engineer. And I did a job shadow my senior year of high school with a civil engineer, and I thought, man, no way. No, thank you. That is not for me. Again, if you're a civil engineer, you can take that up with me later. But I just thought, no, thanks. And so I did a job shadow with a local dentist, and I thought, man, I could do this. Man, I could make six-figure income, live this comfortable American life, and sort of just rubber stamp my Christianity all over my plans. In fact, <clears throat> my pursuit of the American dream um, it blew up in my face my sophomore year of college when a minister sat me down and he said, Sean, let me share something with you. Life is not about you and your agenda. In fact, you should probably think about getting over yourself because that's how I came to college. If I were to sum up my entry into collegiate life, I would have summed it up in three simple phrases, me, my agenda, and a little bit of Jesus. And this minister sat me down and was pretty upfront with me, as you can tell. And he said, Sean, life's not about you and your agenda in fact, not only should you think about getting over yourself, but let me tell you what life is about. And then he did something I had never seen before in my life. He took this book right here, the Bible, and he opened it up in Genesis chapter 1, 
And he walked me from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation, cover to cover, unfolding for me what God's agenda was. And that was to make Jesus Christ known on a worldwide scale among every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people, in every language. I had never seen the Bible talked about that way. I'd never seen God's heart for the nations, God's mission from a global perspective. I'd never seen it presented, excuse me, from Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, missions to me was a New Testament idea that Jesus threw out there in Matthew 28 when he was like, hey, fellas, go and make disciples of all the nations. And now here I am, I'm face to face with God's word. Coming to grips with the fact that, man, God's agenda to make Jesus known on a worldwide scale is an entire biblical idea. It's not just a New Testament idea, man. It's cover to cover. And by the time this guy got done talking, my world, my Christianity, was totally blown apart. Another way I've come to describe it was that my Christianity was um, totally stained, so to speak. Uh, And it was stained in a way that I, I couldn't get out of me what I had seen from God's word about God's purpose and God's agenda to make Jesus known among every tongue, tribe, people, nation, and language. And so that's what I'm going to share with you guys this morning. I'm going to walk you guys from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And I want you guys to see from God's word that this thing that we call missions, God's global agenda, that is not my idea, okay? It's not the traveling team's idea, the organization that I work for. And, it, and, it's, and it's, not, it's not Jeremy's idea, it's not Eric's idea. What I want you guys to see this morning is that God's global agenda is God's idea. And I want you to see it straight from God's word. To take it one step further, what I want you guys to see this morning is that this thing that we call missions, missions is not a program in the church. It's the purpose of the church. It's why the church exists is that God has set us on mission. When he saves us and brings us into his kingdom, he not only saves us for himself, but he saves us in order that we might be sent as well. And I want you to see that from the text, that that missions is not a program in the church alongside of men's ministry and women's ministry and children's ministry and college ministry, and then, oh, missions. Now, what I want you to see is that missions isn't a program in the church. It's the purpose of the church. It's why the church exists. And I want you to see it straight from God's word. So before we jump into God's word, let me pray for us. And then we're going to dive in right where God gets started in Genesis chapter 1. And if you'd switch over my computer, that would be great. Let's pray, you guys. Father, thank you that we have your word in our language that we can understand it and that we can learn from it and grow from it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would make the soil of our hearts good soil that receives your word. Lord, I need grace to help sow that word this morning and to to preach and to teach. Um, I'll need your grace to do that. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we were reminded from your word that One sows, another waters, but Lord, to you alone belongs the growth. And so I'm asking that the the seed would fall in good soil and that you would grow it and that it would produce and it would bear fruit and that it would come to people leaving as, as Eric prayed during the Sunday school hour, that laborers would be sent, that funds would be raised up, that the nations in our backyard would be reached and that we, Lord, 
uh, would begin to pray beyond ourselves and our families and our immediate needs for those around the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully. I'm asking that you would send the Spirit to mercifully blow over this room this morning. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it not working? Hang on just a second. We might not be doing anything. Okay, well, lo and behold, what do we do? What did the Apostle Paul do whenever his PowerPoint broke? I've always asked that question to myself. What did the Apostle Paul do whenever his PowerPoint broke? If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, open up to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, open up to Genesis chapter 12. And hold your place there. Yeah, did I hit it right here maybe? Is that what you're talking about? Hang on a second. Nothing quite so embarrassing for a speaker whenever he can't get his presentation to work, right? The Lord has a sense of humor, does he not? Hold your spot in Genesis chapter 12. Hey, looky there. Okay. I told you guys that the story actually gets off the ground in Genesis chapter 1. So hold your spot in Genesis 12. But the story of God's global purposes actually gets off the ground on page 1. Look up here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Where God comes to Adam and Eve and he gives them the very first commandment in scripture. And this is what it says. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what, you guys? What does it say? Fill the earth, okay? So God comes to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 and gives them the very first commandment in the Bible. Now I don't know if you thought long enough and hard enough about this. But this is actually not only the very first commandment that God gives mankind in scripture. It's also about the only one that we've managed to keep, right? It's like, honor your father and mother, no thanks, do not lie, no thanks, have no other gods before me, no thanks, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, done, Lord, okay? You can talk about what that means later. Um, But God comes to Adam and Eve, and he says to them, I want you to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, literally, physically, I want you to grow your family, I want you to grow it big, I want you to have lots of children, great-grandchildren, and I want you to spread out and fill the earth. So God literally wants Adam and Eve to grow their family, grow it big, and fill the earth. What we need to keep in mind at this point in the story is that there is no sin between God and mankind. They are living in a perfect relationship. And why that matters is because what God is after is a planet full of people who know and worship him. Adam and Eve, the reason that I've created you is for my glory, it's for my worship. I've built you and made you to know me, adore me, obey me, love me, appreciate me, all those things I've built and created you for. And as you begin to grow your family physically, teaching them and training them what it means to know and worship me, what you'll be doing is populating the earth with a planet full of people who know and worship me. So that's what God is after, is a planet full of people who know and worship him. But by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says that man sins and we sever our relationship with God. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, 
The Bible says that every intention in mankind's heart was only set on evil. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 7, God floods the earth. He basically hits the reset button and he starts over with a second family. And in Genesis 9-1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth. Notice, same command repeated to Noah and his family. However, at this point in the story, things have changed. We're not even ten chapters into the entire Bible, and twice already God has commanded mankind to fill the earth. Fill the earth. However, at this point in the story, we know that mankind is sinful, rebellious, obstinate, and disobedient towards God. And so by the time we come to Genesis chapter 11, we come to this story called the Tower of Babel. And let me tell you what's going on 11 chapters into Scripture. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and a common speech. So no matter where you went on planet earth, everybody was speaking one language. What was it? English. That's right. As men moved eastward, the Bible says that they found a plain in Shinar. It wasn't English for those of you who are concerned. We don't know what it was. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. And the Bible says that they settled there. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches to the sky. Why? So that we might make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. God said, do what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. God said, go, and mankind said, what? No. Okay, this is what we call direct disobedience. You don't need a lot of interpretive work, okay, to understand what's going on here. God says go, and mankind says no. Like, at which point I'm waiting for, like, the the next verse to say, and because of their disobedience, God flicked them into the sun, right? That's not what it says. The Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them there over the face of the whole earth. And they stopped building the tower. Now before, everybody was speaking one language. What was it? English. A couple of you are with me. Some of the rest of you are still waking up. Okay? We go from one language to multiple languages, and God spreads mankind out all over the planet. God says go. Mankind says no. God says make a name for me. Mankind says we'll make a name for ourselves. God responds and scatters mankind out all over the planet, and they're speaking all of these different languages. In fact, all of the known languages in the world today, they come from this event right here in Genesis chapter 11. So, like, uh, Spanish, English, Mandarin, French. Um, A coworker of mine's like, does rap count? I was like, sure, that's great. All these different languages in the known world come from Genesis chapter 11. Now, remember... What God is after is a people gathered to himself who know him, who praise him, and who worship him. However, he has scattered them all over. So what is God going to do to gather the scattered? We don't have to go far to find our answer. A chapter later, God is going to choose one man to begin the gathering process. Genesis chapter 12, look down in your Bibles, who is God going to choose? A man by the name of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. And Abram, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. God is going to pick one man, a guy by the name of Abram. And the Bible tells us that he is 75 years old when God interrupts his life and his agenda and commands him to leave. Are you starting to see this repeated theme in Scripture? Fill the earth, fill the earth, go, leave. 
He's 75 years old. In America, we call that retirement. Okay, I don't know that Abram's looking to go anywhere. However, God's command is clear that he is to leave. Where is he to leave? What is he to leave? His land. Abram lived in Ur. It was a port city in the Persian Gulf. It was rich in commerce and trade, and it was soaked in idolatry. God not only commands him to leave his land, but his loved ones, his people, his father's household, his family, those who he shares the closest relationships with, God wants there to be a decisive break away from his wealth, his comfort, his security, and his idolatry. Let me say that again. His wealth, his comfort, his security, and his idolatry. Abraham, I'm commanding you to leave those things and go to a land that I will show you. And notice, you guys, God doesn't bother to tell Abram where he's going or how long he's even staying. Which in my mind is like the worst mission trip recruitment tactic ever. It's like, where are you going? We don't know. How long are you staying? Indefinitely. However, we have a sign-up sheet outside if you're interested in coming. Add to that, he's 75. However, not only does God command him to leave, but listen to what God promises him. This is what I don't want you to miss. Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. And Abram, do not miss the end of verse 3. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I'm not out to ruin your life by commanding you to leave your wealth, comfort, security, and your idolatry. I'm actually out to bless you, but the blessing isn't for you, Abraham. The reason I'm blessing you is so that you'll be a blessing. Who are you to be a blessing to? Who is the blessing for? All peoples. Depending on what translation of scripture you may read, it may say all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all families. Abraham, the promise is that through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Not probably, not maybe, not hopefully, but what? Will. They will be blessed. Now the reason I had you open up to Genesis chapter 12 is because here's what I would like for you to do for those of you who have your Bibles. This does not work with an electronic device, I am sorry. I want you to hold up your Bibles in the air like this. Now, some of you are very nervous because you have bookmarks in the back here that are going to fall out, like bookmarks that your family members have made you, like you're on a reading plan right now, and see stuff's even falling out of mine. It's just part of it. Hold it up. Okay, I want you to literally see, some of you are wishing you would not have bought the study Bible at this point, right? You didn't know it was going to be a physical workout this morning. Well, newsflash. Okay, here's what I want you to see. What I want you to visually see, literally see, is that... Some of you are getting weak on me. I can see you falling, okay? What I want you to see is that 12 chapters in, 12 chapters in, God comes and makes a promise to Abraham that through him all nations, all peoples, all tribes, all ethne will be blessed. Not probably, not maybe. Come on. Not probably, not maybe, but what? Will. What hangs off of this promise? Literally. The rest of the Bible. You can put them down now. I was teaching one time and somebody's binding actually came loose and their entire Bible fell out. I felt terrible for the guy. I was like, I'll buy a new Bible if I need to. What hangs off of this promise? 
The rest of the Bible, the rest of the story. If God doesn't see this thing through right here, all of this is a total wash, a total lie. I want you to recognize that, man, Genesis 12 is what I call the linchpin of Scripture. If you miss Genesis 12, you miss the mission of God. I would take it one step further and argue that if you miss Genesis 12, you miss the entire Bible. God says, Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. Abraham, I'm blessing you in order to be a blessing. The blessing is coming to you, not for you, but because I'm moving it through you. What is the ultimate blessing that God is talking about here? Now, we know that it's for all peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, and languages. But what is the ultimate blessing that God is talking about? That's exactly right. The gospel, Christ. How do we know that God is preaching the gospel to Abraham 12 chapters into the Bible? Jesus isn't going to show up on the scene until the New Testament. How do we know that God is talking to Abraham right here about the gospel? Because Paul tells us so in Galatians 3.8. That God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all nations will be blessed. God is preaching the gospel right here to Abraham. What is the gospel? It's this. That God is going to fix what mankind messed up back in Genesis chapter 3 when we sinned. When he sends Jesus Christ down through Abraham's family bloodline thousands of years from now. And Jesus Christ is going to step onto the scene fully God and fully man. That's important. And he is going to live the perfect, sinless life that none of us in this room, including myself, have ever got a shot at living. He's going to live the perfect, sinless life that none of us could live. And then he's going to march to the cross and he's going to die the death that you and I deserve to die for our sins, in our place, as our substitute. He lives the life we could never live, dies the death that we deserve to die. He is buried in the grave, and three days later, God the Father raises him from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, vindicating Jesus and proving to the world that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And God goes on and promises that whoever... Whoever, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic background, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your, any of that stuff. Whoever will turn from their sins and put their faith and trust in who Christ is and what Christ did. God says, I will forgive you of your sins, wipe your slate clean, and give you life forever to enjoy me in eternity. That's the gospel. God does what we can't do. That's what the gospel says. God did, not what we do. We can't work our way there. We don't have a chance. God does the work for us in and through Christ. And God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That blessing of the gospel is eventually going to make its way to every tongue, tribe, people, nation, and language because God promised Abraham it's so. In fact, Here's what I want you to see as we roll through the rest of Scripture, that God is going to begin to reveal his purpose for the rest of the Bible through his promise. Get used to hearing me say it. God's going to reveal his purpose through his promise. What is God's purpose? To bless all nations. Where do we see that promise? In Genesis chapter 12. And I want you to see how that promise that all nations 
will one day be blessed continues through Abraham's family. Abraham has a son named Isaac. God says, Isaac, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God says, Jacob, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so Abraham's family is what we might call like the first missionary family in Scripture. And God is going to take Abraham's family and use his family to set his agenda, to set his purpose in motion for the rest of the Bible, to begin gathering all nations of the earth back to himself that he scattered at the Tower of Babel. And so, as we work our way through the Old Testament, I'm going to give you a working summary statement of the Old Testament. A lot of times we're like, the Old Testament, what do we do with that? What's it about? Okay, here's your working summary statement of the Old Testament. There's a lot of ways you could summarize the Old Testament, but here's the way we're going to summarize it this morning. Out of all the nations that God scattered at the Tower of Babel, he chose one nation to reach all nations. Now, this is where I'd like for you to say it with me. Out of all the nations, God chose to reach. What's the one nation he's going to choose? Israel. Israel is going to be God's chosen people, but it's for God's chosen purpose. And what's God's purpose? To fulfill a promise to bless all nations. And so as you work your way through the Old Testament, looking for the coming Messiah through the people of Israel, through the line of Abraham, what we see is that God is working in and through Israel in order to fill his promise that all nations would one day be blessed. We see it over and over and over. And we're going to look at several examples that I suspect you guys are familiar with. But the question we want to be asking is what is God doing to fulfill his purpose through a promise that he made to Abraham? Israel, you're going to be my chosen people, but it's for my chosen purpose. And my purpose is that all nations... Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike would be blessed. We don't make it out of the first five books of the Old Testament. and We see God fulfilling his purpose through his promise in the giving of the law. When Moses says to the Israelites, Israel, observe the law, observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding to who you guys. What does it say? The nations. When God gave the law to the nation of Israel, he said, Israel, obey them. Now we know that Israel bombed repeatedly and miserably. One of the reasons God gave the Ten Commandments and the law to Israel was to show them they couldn't keep it and they needed a Savior. Galatians 3.24. So one of the reasons God gives the law is to show Israel and us that we cannot keep God's holy standards and we need Jesus to do it for us. But in addition to that, what Moses is saying here is that there were global implications involved to the giving of the law. When Israel was obedient to the law, okay, when Israel was obedient to God, they were a reflection of God. When Israel was obedient to God, they were a reflection of God. A reflection of God to who? All the nations surrounding them. There were global implications involved in the giving of the law. And so we see God fulfilling his purpose through his promise in the giving of the law. Eventually, Moses, excuse me, hands the leadership baton to Joshua to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And we see God fulfilling his purpose through his promise that all nations would be blessed in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 4, 24, Joshua says, Israel, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Why? So that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. 
When God saved the Israelites out from under the hand of the Egyptians, Israel's salvation was not just for Israel. Did you catch that? Israel's salvation was not just for Israel. Over a half a dozen times in the book of Exodus, God says, the reason I am bringing the ten plagues, the reason I am splitting the Red Sea, the reason I have stopped the River Jordan is so that not only the Israelites, but that the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and all these other peoples of the world might know that I am the living God and not their idols. And so we see God working in and through Israel to begin fulfilling this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 through the giving of the Ten Commandments. We see it in the parting of the Red Sea, the stopping of the River Jordan. How about the story of David and Goliath? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the story of David and Goliath, just so I know my audience. Okay, half of you? Did I come to the right place this morning? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, most of us have heard of the story of David and Goliath. Little guy defeats the big guy. It's like every coach's dream story. Right, you don't even have to be a Christian to tell it. It's like, you know, little league basketball team, kids are down by 60 points. Coach huddles them up. He's like, hey, remember David and Goliath? All the kids are like, yeah. Gives them a slap and says, hey, go get them, right? I mean, I didn't grow up in church. I, I didn't become a Christian until I was about 23 years old. That's a story in and of itself. But I would, I would go to Sunday school at different churches with friends whenever I was a kid, and, you know, and I'm just old enough, I'm just old enough that they still had these things called felt boards. Now, for the college students in here, you don't know what that is, you can go look that up later. For the rest of you in the room, some of you are familiar with what I'm talking about. And they'd always have these Sunday school stories. You know, David Goliath was one of like, it was like one of the premier stories. And the lesson to the story always went something like this, trust in the Lord and he'll defeat the giants in your life. Is that a true statement? Of course it is. But did God take David and use him to slaughter Goliath so that we could, write defeat the giants in our life? Listen to what David says to Goliath. This day I will strike you down, Goliath, remove your head, give the dead bodies of the Philistines to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the earth, right? And and, and by the way, a friend of mine says that this is what you call Jewish trash talk. If you really think about it, I mean, it's, it's pretty gory stuff. David says, Goliath, I'm going to cut you up. I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. But why? Have you ever asked why? Why does God use this small little shepherd boy to slaughter this nine-foot giant? Here's why. The story in my mind has very little to do with David and very little to do with Goliath. It has everything to do with the God, the God of Israel, who was behind orchestrating the entire event. When David slaughtered Goliath, it was one more way for God to put himself on front page world news to the nations and say to them, I am the living God. And so we see God fulfilling his purpose through a promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed as God reveals himself to the Egyptians, to Canaanites, to Philistines, over and over and over again. How about Solomon and his wisdom. Why did God give Solomon his wisdom? Because people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth. God knew that the nations would come knock on King Solomon's front door and they would say, hey, we know you're the wisest person on the planet. We've traveled from all over the world to see you, listen to you talk. The Queen of Sheba is going to travel over 1,500 miles north from modern-day Yemen to Jerusalem just to sit at this guy's feet Listen to him talk and look at his stuff. 
That is a long camel ride, folks. And when she gets there, when this pagan queen, when this pagan Middle Eastern queen comes into the presence of Solomon and she hears his wisdom and sees all his stuff, what is this pagan queen from the nations saying about God? Blessed be the God of Israel. A pagan queen believing in the God of Israel. Because God is working in and through them in order to fulfill His promise that all nations might be blessed. I mean, I don't even have time to talk to you guys this morning about all these other Old Testament stories like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How about Nehemiah in the wall, Rahab, the prostitute? How about the entire book of Jonah? (laughs) Right? Where God sends a reluctant prophet to these terrorist Ninevites. I mean, you think that ISIS is bad. The Ninevites would take their captors, bury them in the sand with nothing but their head above the ground, and ride chariots over them for fun. And God says to Jonah, in fulfillment of my promise to Abraham, I want you to go preach the gospel. I want you to go tell them, 40 days, Nineveh, and judgment's coming. And what does Jonah say? I cannot wait. I can't wait to get there. And to tell them about what you're like. And to tell them about how gracious and merciful and slow to anger you truly are. No, Lord, I don't think I'm called. Maybe I'll go run and hide from your omniscience. That's a big $10 Bible word that means that God knows everything, sees everything. He's, right? No, Joan, I want you to go to the nations. I'm commanding you to go to the nations because it's a fulfillment of a promise that I made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. I mean, we could go on and on and on, you guys. How about the book of Psalms? I mean, Ben came up and read from us out of Psalm 96 about God's glory among the nations. Tell of his deeds and his wondrous works among the nations. What do we go to tell the nations about? Who God is, what he's like, and what he's done in and through Jesus. For sinful people like you and I, that we could be forgiven, reconciled, made right with God forever. I mean, how about this one? Psalm 4610, I'll get it started. I know you guys are familiar with it. Be still, you guys know the rest of it? What's the rest of it say? And know that I am God, right? Be still and know that I am God. This might be the second most popular verse in all of Christendom, next to John 316. Psalm 4610, and as I have traveled across the country, I've seen this verse plastered on just about everything that you could possibly imagine. Christian t-shirts, Christian coffee mugs, Christian house decorations. Some of you guys are like, I have those house decorations, tread lightly. And if you think long enough and hard enough about it, some of them hang over the back of your toilets, which might be a good place to be still. Some of you are like, can he say that from the stage? Well, I just did. Um, yeah, we're familiar with Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I'm God. I mean, when we think of this verse, this is often what we think of. Pictures like this. The ones that are hanging up in your house. The only problem with this verse is that little subscript there at the end. Psalm 4610 what? Hey, well, what's that all about? Well, there's only so much white space on the page, Sean. 
There's kind of a bottleneck right there at the trees. We don't have a, you know, we don't have the space to get the whole verse on there. Some of you guys are thinking, whole verse? Yeah, there's an entire second half, and here's what it says. I will be exalted among the... I will be exalted in all the earth. Now, why is it that we're so familiar with part one, but we're so unfamiliar with part two? I remember 12 years ago, you guys, whenever I was sitting in your seats, I had zero interest in global missions. I could have cared less. I was living for myself, my agenda, and a little bit of Jesus if I could squeeze him in. And I remember as this guy opened up the Bible and he walked from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation, I thought to myself, you've got to be joking me. There's an entire second half to Psalm 4610 about God's purpose among the nations. I have been robbed this whole time. Why didn't anybody tell me this? And so I thought, I'm going to go to a local Christian bookstore and I'm going to buy me some books on missions. As though the Bible's not sufficient, right? (laughs) And so I thought, I'm going to go buy myself some books on missions. And so I head off to a local Christian bookstore. Now, I don't know if you guys have one in Cape, but um, where I'm from in Arkansas, we had two. So you had options. So I thought, I'll go to a local Christian bookstore. I'm going to buy me some books on missions. Now, I don't know if you've been into one of these local Christian bookstores lately, but Christian bookstores are, at least the ones in Arkansas, they're a lot like Target or Walmart. Okay, It's like a one-stop shop for all of your Jesus needs. Okay. I mean, they've got like Christian clothing in these places. They've got Christian food. They've got Christian office supplies. They've got Christian ink, Christian paper, Christian candy, Christian toys, Christian house decorations. And I thought, and I remember walking into this local Christian bookstore there in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I looked down to my left, and there's a Jesus action figurine. And I was like, no way. <laughs> and then, seriously, and then I looked down to the right, and there was a book. It was like Seven Spiritual Tips to Your Best Home Garden. I thought, they've got it all. They have, they have everything I could ever want here. And so I remember walking up to the counter, and I said to the guy at the counter, excuse me, sir, can you please point me to the mission section? And this guy looked at me, and he said, oh, young man, I'm so sorry. We don't have a mission section because missions books just don't really sell. And I said, excuse me? And he said, yeah, there's not really much of a market for that kind of Christian content. It doesn't really help keep the lights on. And I said, sir, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you sell Dance Dance Praise in here. If you don't know what Dance Dance Praise is, just go look it up later, okay? It's a Christian video game where you lay out this mat on the floor and you you dance on this mat and you raise your hands and you sing praise songs to Jesus and you score bonus points while you do it. Some of you can't even believe me at this very moment. Just look it up. Christians have some weird things sometimes. I said, are you aware of the fact that you sell dance, dance, praise in here? I remember I was teaching through this content about a year ago at a private Christian university, and this sweet girl in the front row, she raised her hand. She goes, it was so fun. I said, you must have been homeschooled. Um, And then the best part came. She goes, I was. (laughs) True story. Man, we got everything you 
could ever want in here. Christian video games, Christian clothes, Christian house decorations. But to get a book on God's heart for the nations that tells me about his global purposes starting in Genesis 12 through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Ten Commandments, David, Goliath, Solomon's wisdom, Nehemiah on the wall, Lion's Den, on and on and on, the Psalms, to get a book like that, that's special order. Missions just doesn't sell. And I don't say this to make you feel guilty, I mean it. But man, welcome to American Christianity. Me, 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 me. But to get something on God's heart for the nations about what he's doing to fulfill this promise all the way back in Genesis 12, sorry, there's just not enough white space on the page. And what I want you guys to see is that as we roll out of the Old Testament into the New, nothing changes. Jesus steps onto the scene at age 30. He begins his public ministry. And if you look at Jesus' public ministry, we talked about this in Sunday school, a significant portion of Jesus' ministry was actually with other people from other nations, non-Jews, people who weren't his own countrymen. Examples like the Samaritan woman at the well, the healing of the Canaanite's daughter, the centurion, the Roman centurion's faith. Two dozen examples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus reaching the nations that were right there in his own backyard. You guys realize that Jesus never went on a mission trip, so to speak. He never got on a plane and crossed the pond. However, he was engaged in reaching the nations that were right there in his backyard. And as I told the Sunday school class, and I'll say to you guys, man, God is bringing the nations to our backyard. God is bringing the nations to our backyard. <clears throat> and I told the Sunday school, and again, I'll tell you guys this. I don't really care whether, where you land politically, Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> but anybody who's watching the news right now knows that immigration and refugees are a huge political topic. And it has created a swell of emotion and issue within the evangelical church. What are we to do about the nations that are in our backyard? Are we okay with people from other countries coming here? How do we respond to the ones who are here? Oh, I don't want those people coming here. They're a threat to my safety and my comfort, my security. I don't know how else to say it, you guys. That's not Jesus' top priority for you and me. It's just not. My safety, my comfort, and my security is not Jesus' top priority. His priority is his glory among the nations. And the fulfillment of a promise that all of them would be blessed through the finished work of Jesus. This is Hussein. Hussein is not from America. I met Hussein at a missions conference that I was teaching at in Arkansas. <clears throat> and Hussein came up to me after I got done teaching and he said, hey, I just wanted to thank you for coming. I appreciate what you had to say. And I said, man, thanks, Hussein. I appreciate it. Um, I was glad to come and share with you. And as Hussein talked longer and longer, it was pretty obvious that he wasn't from America. He had a very clear, distinct accent. So I asked Hussein, I said, Hussein, where are you from? He said, I'm from Mauritania. 
said, you're from Mauritania, yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know where Mauritania is, this is a great opportunity for you to go back and get, uh, get out your, right, your maps. Africa is not a country, <clears throat> it's a continent. Mauritania is a country in Northwest Africa. I said, Hussein, you're from Mauritania. He said, yeah. Now, knowing what I know about the country of Mauritania, it's like 99.99999% Muslim. It's one of the most Muslim countries in the world. There are only two countries in the world that hold the title, the Republic of Islam, the Demo- like, the, the, like the Republic of Islam, that title, that phrase right there is attached to the country of Mauritania, and I think it's uh, Iraq, if I remember correctly. You can go fact check me on that. You're from Mauritania. Yeah, 99.99% Muslim. He said, yeah. I said, Hussein, what are you doing at a Christian mission conference? <laughs> you, see the, you see the confusion that I've got here. Right, here's a guy that, I said, man, I'm glad that you're here. Like, I'm glad that you came. You are welcome among other believers, other Christians. We, we're delighted that you're here. But tell me, how did a man that came from a predominantly Muslim country find himself at a Christian missions conference? And he said, oh, Sean, I, I am a Christian. I said, you are? Yeah, he said, I've been a Christian for about six months now. I said, you are a Christian. You've been a, a, a Christian for six months and you're at a missions conference from Mauritania in the U.S. And he said, yeah. I said, how did you come to Christ, Hussein? He said, well, I met a man named Clayton Clark. He was a Christian. Now, Clayton Clark doesn't mean anything to you guys, but I know Clayton personally. <clears throat> he grew up at the, at the church that my father-in-law pastored in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Clayton has a heart for Muslims the size of Texas. I cannot tell you how many people that he has led to Christ. Whole families, whole Muslim families in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And Hussein said, I met Clayton and we became friends. And Clayton asked me if I would be interested in simply reading the Bible with him. And I said, of course I would. I'm a religious, spiritual man. I would be interested in learning about Islam, or excuse me, about Christianity. And as they began to read through the Gospel of John and Clayton began to explain to him who Jesus was and what Christ had done, the Holy Spirit opened up Hussein's heart and his eyes and saved him. And he can articulate the Gospel better than most American Christians can. Simply because an American Christian reached out to the nations that was in his backyard. Now why do I belate this point? Here's why. Because when we reach out to the nations that are in our backyard, we put one of the clearest pictures of the gospel on display. What do I mean when I say that? We all in this room were enemies with God before God caused us to be born again through the power of the Spirit. All of us were enemies with God, and while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died. When we were enemies with God, God reached out to love us. And so when we reach out to our enemies, those who threaten our safety, comfort, and security, we put a picture of the gospel on display for the world to see. When we are loving not just our neighbors, Jesus says, but you're to take it one step further. Love your neighbors and love your enemies. Not an easy thing, but clear. 
Some of them are coming to our own backyard. Now, I'm not saying that all of the Muslims and all the refugees that come to America are terrorists. They're not. That's absurd. However, let's not be naive. Some of them are. But my, my understanding of what the Bible tells me is that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether they are terrorists or aren't terrorists. We are to what? Love them. Not only did Jesus model it, he went on to mandate it. Go and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel in the whole world as a testimony to all creation. And this wasn't just an idea in the heartbeat of Jesus himself, God incarnate. But we see it in the Apostle Paul himself in Romans 15, 20. He said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Paul said, tell me where people have never heard the name of Jesus. And that's where I want to go. Not where someone else is building a foundation, but where no one else has been. That's where I want to go preach the gospel. So where are those people who are yet to hear? Well, most of them are located in a part of the world called the 1040 window. Now, the good news is that what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, we see he brings to completion in Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from where? Every tribe, nation, people, and language. Promise made, promise kept. And I think that the question that all of us, myself included, have to be asking is are we on board? Are we on board individually? Are we on board as a family? Are we on board corporately as a body? Because God is going to see this thing through, whether we're on board or not. This verse right here is as sure as the sunrise. God will fulfill his promise to Abraham that people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every language will one day be standing around the throne worshiping Jesus because of who Christ is and what Christ's done. And for us, the simple question we need to be asking is, are we living for ourselves and our agenda, whatever it may be? Or are we resigned to living for God and God's agenda to make Jesus known on a worldwide scale?